Well, Anne, it is really, really good to see you. Uh, we missed you, and we're happy to have you here at Christ Fellowship today. And it is an absolute honor to meet your mom and to meet your dad uh, for the first time. And we welcome you to Christ Fellowship and welcome you to the United States of America. I need to tell you that uh, Germany has a very, very special place in, in my heart. I have only been to Germany twice. I, I hope to go many more times, but the times I've been have, have been very significant. The last time I went to Germany uh, became one of the most important and remarkable times in my whole life. Uh, that was the day when I had a chance to go to uh, uh, Worms, and to see the site where Martin Luther, one of my heroes, made his stand against the Roman Catholic Church when he said, Here I stand. God help me. My conscience is held captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then we traced his steps all the way to the Vortberg Castle. Oh, my. What, what a day. I'm, I'm getting shivers as I think about that day. So um, I have a, a deep uh, love for Germany, and so we're so very glad that you are here. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. Before we look at the Word of God this morning, I want to have you think with me about a time in your life when you felt hopeless. I want you to think of a time in your life when all the chips were down. Perhaps there were financial concerns or a failing marriage or a, a friendship that just didn't seem to pan out. Perhaps it had to do with declining health. It was a, a disease, an impending surgery. Perhaps you were dealing with doubt, doubt in the Christian faith, doubt in your, your life, doubt with your, your goals. Or perhaps you can just say, Pastor, I'll admit it, I can remember a day when I was an emotional wreck. Nothing seemed to be going right for me. And so think of a time when everything appeared to be against you. Now, some of you can, can rewind the tape and think back several months ago or several years ago and say, Ah, yes, I, I remember that, that dark season that I lived in. Nothing seemed to work. You were at the end of your rope. But for some of you, you don't have to rewind the tape. Some of you on this day are going through that, that dark night of the soul right now, where hopelessness has you by the throat. Whatever it is that you've been through or whatever it is that you're facing currently, I want to begin this morning by saying that we worship an all-sufficient Savior who delights in meeting the needs of his people. It is the gospel that meets our needs in our greatest time of needs, is it not? Just a few days ago, I read a line by Paul David Tripp, and he reminds us, quote, We will never be so holy as to meet God's standard, and we are never too wicked as to be beyond his rescue, close quote. And so I want to remind you today that the gospel is for all peoples. The gospel is for all people groups. The gospel, you see, confronts self-righteous people and addresses their grievous sin. The gospel tells us that we can never stand on our own merits before the presence of Almighty God. 
And that is one of the, the fundamental realities that Martin Luther surfaced. If you remember, the Protestant reformers asked, how can we stand in the presence of a holy God? And the Roman Catholic Church had taught over and over and over again that it's faith plus works plus penance plus the sacraments and on and on and on and on. And Luther came to that, that grand discovery that we were, we we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And he spent the remainder of his days a hunted man, a heretic, as the Roman Catholic Church said. Pope Leo called him a wild boar in the vineyard. Something in the back of my mind makes me think that Luther rather liked that title. You see, the gospel lifts up the downtrodden. The gospel lifts up the discouraged. The gospel reminds all of the lonely people, all of the discouraged people, all of the depressed and anxious people, all of the fearful people, that in Christ you are victorious. In Christ, you are victorious. It is the gospel that tells us all to fear not. Fear not. The gospel reminds us that we are loved by a holy God. Here we are. Most of us have been walking with Jesus for quite some time now. Some of us are brand new to the Christian faith. But wherever you are, I want you to be... Re-energized and become re-familiar with that amazing reality that a thrice holy God loves you. Is that something? That is absolutely amazing. I was at a coffee shop a few days ago and a gentleman said, How are you doing? I said, Better than I deserve. And he said, Oh, we're off to a very positive start, aren't we? Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I deserve to go to hell. And so do you. But despite that reality, we know this, that the thrice holy God loves his people. The gospel reminds us that everyone who turns from their sin and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven of all their sin. Not just some of their sins, but all of their sins. All the sin in the past, all the sin in the present, all the sin in the future. And I hope you're saying to yourself, wow, that's good news. Because that is really, really good news. Additionally, the gospel reminds us of our future with God in the new heaven and the new earth, doesn't it, Frank? If, you have a, if you've never had a chance to read the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn, run quickly to your computer and order it from Amazon. Is it a wonderful, wonderful book? Because the gospel reminds us that we will one day spend all eternity on the new, in the new heavens and the new earth, a future where every, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. In Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John recounts, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And you recall, that was the, one of the promises of the new covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. John continues, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these are words which are trustworthy and true. I want you to remind you this morning, as some of you face horrible, horrible pain, be it emotional pain or physical pain or pain from the past or a combination of all of those, that the gospel reminds us of this, that our pain is not pointless. Rather, our pain actually serves a a higher purpose. One writer says it like this. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy, so said Tim Keller. I want you to remember today as we have spent week after week after week laboring in the Gospel of John, that the disciples understood grief. The disciples understood something of what you are going through now or what you have gone through in days past. The disciples, you see, understood suffering. The disciples understood sorrow. You see, they endured incredible personal loss. The disciples endured, you remember, the, the mocking and the jeering of the crowd. And if that was not enough, Jesus tells them this, I'm going to depart soon. The one whom they had grown to love so dearly would now be gone. And the very very prospect of the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ caused the disciples to experience, as we will see, unimaginable sorrow. I want to have you look with me in John chapter 16 and stand to your feet as we read our passage today, beginning in verse 16. John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus says to his disciples, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you until now. You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, as we move closer in this narrative to uh, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded of the gravity of the situation. This is a weighty moment for the disciples as their hearts are filled with, with fear and sorrow and anguish. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, 
to get into this passage, uh, even emotionally to to get into it, to understand a bit of the hurt, a bit of the sorrow that the disciples experienced. For this is something that each of us has experienced in our life or something that many of us experienced on this day as well. God, I pray that uh, the gospel would ring true in our hearts today, that it would not ring hollow, that it would not sound trite, that it would not be something that we uh, hear over and over and over again, but it doesn't affect our hearts. God, I pray that your word would do a work today, that your spirit would stir your people up. I pray that you'd give our, our eyes the ability to see and our hearts would be soft to hear your word and respond to your word And that it would make a difference in the way that we live our daily lives. We give you the glory in advance. In your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is From Morning to Dancing. From Morning to Dancing. And the question I want to chew on for the next few minutes is a question that was not only relevant for the disciples about 2,000 years ago, this is a question that has direct bearing on your life and on my life today. Here's the question. How does Jesus Christ rekindle the hope in his disciples? And before we answer that question, we need to talk very straight about something. We need to address the matter of sorrow. And the reason I think we need to address the matter of sorrow is that Many people, I think you would agree with me, in the Christian church are not good about dealing with sorrow. We are, as you might say, experts at stuffing our sorrow. How are you doing today? Oh, great, great. Right? How are you doing today? Oh, nothing could be better. And you're dying on the inside. I've had some of you in this church, when I've asked, how are you doing? And you break down in tears. Or you'll, you'll share and you'll, you'll lament all that's going on. And then, and then typically that person will apologize. You know what? I, I am greatly encouraged by someone who can just say, I'm having a rotten day. Would you pray for me, Pastor? Do you have any words of, of encouragement? And so the appeal this morning is if you're struggling with sorrow, say you're struggling with sorrow. Don't be like the typical Christian and stuff it and put the big cheesy smile on your face and say, everything's great, everything's great, it's super, and you're dying on the inside. You see, I think that we're afraid of sounding weak if we admit our sorrow. If I could speak from the perspective of a pastor, I can tell you this, that many pastors are battling sorrow and discouragement and loneliness, and they will not admit it to anyone. Do you know the reason why? Because they're, they're afraid that they'll be dismissed. That's the reason why. And so here you have pastors and, and missionaries on the field who are struggling filled with anxiety and loneliness and sorrow, and they're afraid to tell someone because they think they'll get fired or a missionary thinks they'll be pulled off the field. After all, we're people who have our act together, right? Everything's great. And so in verse 20 of chapter 16, I want you to see that Jesus uses three words to describe this very realistic condition 
I should add, spiritual condition of his disciples. Let me read it for you. Verse 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and I would have you, see if you can be like a detective and find these three words. You will weep. Give you a hint. That's the first one. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You, the disciples, will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The three emotions, the three affections that Jesus addresses here begin here with weeping. He says that you will weep, and the word weep comes from a Greek term that really the English term doesn't adequately display what Jesus, I think, means to convey. The word weep, translated from this Greek word, means to bawl or to cry loudly. It means to bawl or to cry loudly. It doesn't mean to merely whimper, right? It's, have you ever heard a child do this kind of crying? Oh, I don't like that. When a child does that, I'm like, I'm out of here. I have no idea what to do with that. Is anyone with me? Oh, man, it's just like, but there, some of you out there are real, I'm looking at some of you in the eye, and you're, you're really gifted. You know how to grab that child and hug that child. I'm just like, I have no idea what to do. That is bawling, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The same word here, translated as weep, is used to describe the Apostle Peter when he denied Jesus. And I think this will give you a little window into the heart of Peter. You remember this verse in Mark chapter 14, verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And here's the response. And Peter broke down and wept, or he cried bitterly. That's what Jesus says is the emotional state of the disciples just prior to his going to the cross. Then if you look at verse 20, you see the second word. We move from weeping to lamenting. And this is a Greek term that literally means to wail. It means to wail. The word is used in the context of a funeral service. The same word is used to describe people who were mourning over the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verse 27. And there was following him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Let me just say, this is serious emotion. This is not but a whimper. This is serious, heartfelt emotion. And then, of course, in verse 20, the third word you'll see that Jesus addresses is sorrow. This comes from a Greek word that means to be sad or to be distressed. Now, I hope that we're at a place now where we can all be real. Are we, are we there? I want to ask for a show of hands. How many? Now, get ready because I, I might just go into my, my ninja cut mode if I don't see lots of hands, right? How many of you have ever experienced sorrow? Deep, deep hurt. There's a few that are not raising your hands. If you haven't raised your hand and you haven't experienced it, here's a guarantee. You will experience it. You will experience that measure of sorrow. And as I studied this passage, I came to this conclusion. This is my logic. If the inner circle of men 
who were tight with Jesus, men who were the, the more close to Jesus than anyone else in the world. If the circle of men, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, battled with sorrow, this level of sorrow, why do we think that we're immune? These were some, these were some godly guys who gave up everything to follow Jesus, yet they battled sorrow. They were filled with weeping and lamenting. And so, if the men who turned the world upside down, that led to the worldwide expansion of the kingdom that will come to pass in eternity future, if they battled sorrow, if they battled discouragement, where do we, where, where do we come up with the idea that we can escape sorrow's grasp? And so, I want to begin this morning with a plea. And I'll just put it, I'll just put it in First Avenue language, if I could be so bold. Let's get real today. Let's, let's admit that we are broken people. And I believe that once we will admit that we don't have it all together, we become prime candidates to allow the gospel to do its work. And indeed, it is a mighty work. And so, once again, how does Jesus rekindle the hope of his disciples? I want to have you look with me at three headings today that will help to answer that question. The first is this, is that Jesus unhinges the door of doubt and confusion from the mind of his disciples. And what happens in verse 16 is, I want you to see that Jesus makes a bold prediction. And indeed, it is a bold prediction. If you look at it with me, he says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and here's the bold prediction I want to focus on. You will see me. That's the bold prediction. You will see me. And if you scan through all the way down to verse 22, you'll see that Jesus makes much of this little statement. You will see me, but he's not the only one that makes much of this little statement. The disciples are kind of scratching their heads. and they're, they're, the, the flavor I get from this passage is they're going something like this. They're whispering under their breaths going, dude, what does the Savior mean? He says he's going to leave, and then we're going to see him, and he's going to the Father. What does all this mean? And so we need to try to figure out what this little phrase means. What is the bold prediction that Jesus makes? And there are three prominent views. Let me share them with you. The first view is that this is a reference to Christ's coming. This is a reference to Christ's coming. A view, given the context, does not seem to be a viable option. The second view, a pretty popular view, is that this is a reference to the three days between his death and resurrection. And I believe that we can rule out this popular view because Christ was only with the disciples for 40 days, you'll remember, after the resurrection. If this view were true, that would mean the disciples would be forced to relive all of this grief and misery all over again as Jesus would go to the right hand of the Father at the ascension of Christ. There's a third view, and this is the view that I hold and the view that I will uh, uh, embrace and promote with you today. And that is that what Jesus means is he's referring to the promise of the coming Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After completing the work that the Father sent him to do, that would be to die on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him, and make his ascent to heaven, Jesus would send whom? 
We have seen in John chapter 16 and John chapter 14 the promised Holy Spirit. That the Lord Jesus and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And the disciples saw Christ as He came to them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, as Jesus had promised, would guide them to all truth and that they would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the response of the disciples. Verses 17 and 18. So some of His disciples said to one another, well, what, what is this? What is this that He says to us? A little while and you will see Me, and again in a little while and you will see Me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He is talking about. Now I want you to also see the response of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't get frustrated with His disciples. He does not admonish His disciples. Rather, He continues to give them promises. He encourages the disciples with a promise of joy. Verse 20, once again, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And I would add, why would the world rejoice? The world will rejoice because Jesus will be dead. You see the, 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 the contrast here? The followers of Jesus would, would lament and be filled with sorrow, but the world would clap. The world would raise their hands for the Lord Jesus Christ would finally be dead. Then he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And then he encourages the disciples with an illustration that every woman who was born a child can relate to. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Then go to verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. What is he saying here? It hurts. She has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so he seeks to encourage the disciples with this illustration. Hold your finger with me, if you would, in John chapter 16 and go over to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16. Now... We obviously don't have time, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 13. We obviously don't have time to walk through all of the events of Pentecost. But if you kind of put two and two together, you realize that Pentecost now in the book of Acts has already taken place. And now we come to the point of Acts chapter 13. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 52. The Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son. Verse 52 says this, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, their joy was a direct result of the promised Holy Spirit. This is one of the many reasons... Aaron, you and I have talked a little bit about this. This is one of the many reasons that we as Baptists must be very careful not to discount or marginalize or downplay the role of the Holy Spirit. Is anyone with me? You see, when we discount the person and work of the Holy Spirit, I believe our joy begins to falter. And so we see that there's a direct correlation between the, the sending of the Spirit and the joy 
of the people of God. After the resurrection of Jesus, His ascension and the sending of the Spirit, the disciples now had a better understanding of Jesus' teaching. They had a new perspective because now they're looking in the rearview mirror. Can you imagine if you were one of the disciples and you're one of those guys, and I would have been one of those guys, I'd be the first to admit, what is the Savior talking about? Destroy this temple and it'll be raised in three days. I'm going to the Father. I'll see you later. All these things. But now, when they look at the cross in the rearview mirror, their questions are answered. John MacArthur adds, quote, The cross is foundational to all Christian joy because it is the basis of redemption. Nothing can undo the work of grace wrought in believers' lives through the power of the cross. Now, no doubt, The disciples had more questions for the Lord Jesus in the time between the resurrection and the ascension. But here's what Jesus says. But after the Spirit came at Pentecost, all these questions would cease. And here's the application I want to encourage you with today. What are some of the things that you're wrestling with these days? Are you like the disciples and you're you're mumbling under your breath? I'll have to be honest. There have been time... Times, I should say, over the last several weeks that I've found myself mumbling under my breath. God, what are you doing? Why? Why this? Why this reaction? Why this chain of events? Are you like the disciples questioning the plan and the purposes of God? Or are you like the disciples where they had a propensity to doubt the word of God? Or do you doubt the promises of God? Here's what Jesus does here. Jesus unhinges the door of doubt for the disciples, and he will do the same for you. If you have questions today, if you have yearnings today, if you have longings today, if you're filled with doubt, the Lord Jesus Christ longs to to unhinge that door of doubt in your life. But there's a second way that Jesus rekindles the hope of the disciples. It's found in verses 23 and 24. Would you read it with me? He says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The second way that Jesus rekindles the hope of his disciples is that Jesus unbolts a new way to pray. First, he unhinges the doubt in their minds. He unhinges the the confusion from their minds. Now the Lord Jesus Christ unbolts a new way to pray. And I want you to see a bold pattern. And for you and I as followers of Jesus, what I will share is, is... Maybe pretty old news for a lot of you, but the bold pattern would be brand new for the disciples. Here's the bold pattern. This bold pattern involves direct and unhindered prayer to the Father in Jesus' name. Do you see it there? He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. Do you remember the last time you prayed and you said something like this? In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. That's how many of us were taught to pray. Well, Jesus had already instructed the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to address address their prayers to whom? Do you remember this? When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
Jesus responded as follows. Pray like this. That's right. He didn't say our son. He didn't say our spirit. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven. And so to pray now in Jesus' name is not some mere tack on. To pray in Jesus' name is not some kind of a special formula. To pray in the name of Jesus is to acknowledge your humble dependence upon him. One pastor says it like this. It is to pray for that which is consistent with Christ's person and will and to affirm one's complete dependence on him to supply every need with the goal that he would be glorified in the answer. You see, First Timothy teaches us this. There is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. Now, oh man, I, I don't want to do this because I, I, I don't want to step on toes. But I'm going to begin by saying it like this. What I'm going to challenge all of us with at this point, every one of us have done. I'm convinced. We have all done it. So that means no one's toes can be stepped on. Are you with me? Here, here is what happens. I want you to imagine... And if you've done this recently, please don't think that I, I heard you and I, I'm, I'm ripping on you. That's not it at all. But I, I, I watch, and I've done this as well, okay? Over the years, I see something like this. A prayer will be uttered. Dear God, da 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 And how does the prayer end? In your name, amen. And here's what I ask. And I know some of you are going to think, ah, you're getting a little bit nitpicky. It's not nitpicky. In whose name? The assumption is Jesus, right? But what if I meant the Holy Spirit? How does Jesus tell us to pray? We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. Now, let me make one thing really clear. If you're a soldier in battle and you're about ready to die and you cry out, Lord Jesus, help me! Do you think some theologian is going to come along and say, that was unbiblical to pray like that? The answer is, of course not, because Jesus is God. He shares all the attributes of God. Some of you know charismatics who make it a habit of saying, Holy Spirit, come to this place. Is some theologian going to come along and say, that was an unbiblical prayer? Perhaps. Perhaps. Right? The Holy Spirit, as is the Lord Jesus Christ, possesses all the attributes of God. He is God. Father, Son, Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal from all eternity to all eternity. But here is what I want to have you take home with you today. There is a, a pattern to prayer that we see in the New Testament. There's a pattern to prayer where we, we utter our prayers as a general rule to God the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. And I know I've done it many times. I'll finish my prayer and I'll say, in your name, amen. And I'll say to myself, ooh. And so the plea here is, let's be, let's be careful with how we pray. Let's be precise with how we pray. And now that I know I've stepped on no toes whatsoever, because we've all done this. We need to be careful how we address 
the Father? Do we pray without ceasing? Do you draw near to the throne of grace? Why? Because this is where the Bible tells us this is where we find mercy and help in time of need. I want to challenge you to think carefully about the way that you address your God. My friend Bruce Ware says it like this. Prayer then should normally be directed to the Father. But we can only come to the Father because of what Christ has done for us through His death and resurrection. And so our prayers are to the Father in the name or the authority of the Son, but we also need the Spirit to direct us to pray as we should. I remember a bit of controversy was stirred up just personally with a couple of people where I would tell them, that when I was teaching my children to pray, you know, it's a typical thing. You go and you sit by your, your child's bed, and the child would say, Dear Jesus, thank you. Da, 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 da. And they, we'd finish the prayer, and I'd say, Now, young man or young lady, I'd say, Let's talk about prayer. And, and I had people come to me and say, How could you be so cold? How could you be so callous? I don't, do you, is it cold or callous? Or do we have a desire to be biblical? And so there's a general pattern that we address our prayers to the Father. Jesus here unbolts a new and a powerful way to pray. This must have blown the minds of the disciples. And in so doing, he helps to rekindle the hope of his disciples. He shows them that the intimacy of of prayer is possible with a holy God. But there's a third way that Jesus rekindles the hope of his disciples. And I want you to see it with me also as it emerges in verse 24. Here in verse 24, we see that Jesus now unlocks a path for a life of unhindered joy. And here I want you to see a a really a bold purpose. And I'll state it as follows, that believing prayer... Grounded in obedience to Jesus' word is the path to fruitful discipleship. The death, burial, and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit by the Father and by the Son inaugurate or begin a new season in the lives of the disciples. You see, for us, we're looking in the rearview mirror. We've kind of got all this stuff put together or we're putting the puzzle pieces together. For the disciples, this is all brand new. This is exciting stuff. And so while it was new for the disciples, 2,000 years into redemptive history, we're living the dream now. I don't say that crassly. I mean it. We're living the dream now. We as children of the new covenant go to God the Father. And we we plead with Him, and we make our petitions in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit, and He listens to us, and He loves to commune with His people. And so Jesus unlocked a path of life, of unhindered joy for the disciples, and the disciples lived to tell of that joy, as even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of tribulation that we'll learn more about next week, they experienced that joy. Here's the truth point. Summarize, Jesus rekindles the hope of his disciples by unhinging their doubt, by unbolting a new way to pray, and by unlocking a path for a life of unhindered joy. I don't know what it is today that is the the roadblock, the barrier, the massive door that is preventing you 
from experiencing the kind of joy that God wants you to have. But know this, Jesus unhinged it from the disciples' minds. He unbolted this new way to pray that we have experienced ever since the day we first trusted Christ. And he has unlocked a path for us to have a life of unhindered joy. This new radical way of living was something the disciples anticipated, and then they lived out in the events that followed that great moment of Pentecost. And so as the disciples moved from mourning to dancing, so must we. So must we. Because we now experience all the promises that the Lord Jesus made for his disciples. I want to close by sharing some, some personal thoughts. I want to close by making this statement that one of the most important things I have made, or the most important uh, observation that I have made in the Christian life is this. Is that to be joyful, to be joyful is a fight. Have you experienced that? To, to be joyful is a fight. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it means something like this. You wake up in the morning and you have a headache and you have to go to work. And you're like, this is just a bunch of garbage, right? Or let's say you don't wake up with a headache and you're, you get up excited to go to work. And on the way to the work, someone cuts you off. And the whole rest of the day, you're like that kind of person. Or let's say you don't have a headache and no one cuts you off and you're having a great day at work and you get to lunch and the half and half of your coffee spoiled and man, it gets you in a grumpy mood. Or let's say none of that happens and you get the call at 3 o'clock and your best friend from high school was just in a collision and died. Or you get the diagnosis from the doctor and the list goes on and on and on. And so you see that the imperative, and you remember that, that to be joyful is an imperative. It is not an option in the Christian life. We are called to be joyful people. This is the observation that I've made. That to be joyful is a fight. It does not come automatically. Joy does not come by merely flipping a switch. And I think somewhere along the way in the Christian life, we... We assume that joy comes by flipping the switch. And it works like this. I'll, I'll read a chapter in the Bible, and when I'm done, I'll be happy. Or I'll say a quick prayer, and I'll be happy. But it's much more intense than that. And so, the writer who has helped me more than anyone, no question, more than anyone, is John Piper on this matter. He has, ta he has talked and preached and written on this extensively and given us some great insight in how to fight for joy. I want to close the message this morning by, by walking you through 14 steps that Dr. Piper helps us with in fighting for joy. And I can tell you this, this will be on my desk, and I pray that it will be on refrigerators and your desk and in your car, or on your iPad, or wherever you put important things to remember that we must fight for joy. Number one, realize that authentic joy in God is a gift. Whenever we are filled with joy, recognize and remember that that is a sovereign gift from the hand of a merciful God. Number two, realize that joy must be fought for relentlessly. Not just fought for, that the, the fight for joy is a relentless battle all the way from the day that you trust Christ to the day you walk through the gates at the celestial city. Number three, 
resolve to attack all known sin in your life. Do a personal inventory. Ask God, God, what is it? What is it? Is it, is it something specific? Is it something that I have been casting aside? Is it, is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it worry? Is it, is it lust? Is it jealousy? Is it sinful anger? Whatever it is, resolve to attack all the known sin in your life. Because know this, if there's known sin in your life, you don't deal with it, you aren't going to be joyful. You, you aren't going to be joyful. Number four, I love this. Piper says, learn the secret of gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt. Learn how to fight like a justified sinner. Learn how to fight like a justified sinner. So what he means is this, when you feel condemned, when you feel unworthy, when you feel unforgiven, when you feel like the, the Lord thinks less of you, remember this and fight with all your might. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Number five, realize that the battle is primarily a fight to see God for who he is. I'll put it this way is if we have false notions of who God is, that will affect our Christian lives. And there are false notions of God at every juncture in the Christian life. I can tell you this. I read a book about a year ago. And you don't even know know the name of the book because my prayer would be that none of you would ever read it. I went to review the book. This is a Christian author. The book was so bad, so bad, that I refused to review it. I mean, it was that bad, and the book has been fairly successful in the marketplace. So we need to be careful as we study the doctrine of God. Number six, meditate on the Word of God day and night. Spend time reading and memorizing and meditating on the Word of God. Number seven, pray earnestly and continually for an open heart and eyes that have an inclination for God. Pray this, God... Oh, Father, would you open the eyes of my heart to see wonderful things in your law? Would my heart be inclined to follow you, to obey you, to serve you? Number eight, learn to preach the gospel to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself rather than to listen to yourself. If you're trying to figure out what he means by that, it means something like this. When you have those little doubts in your mind, you start to go, yeah, that's true, right? It's kind of like when you're in third grade and someone says you're dumb. That horrible teacher said you're dumb. You go the rest of your life thinking you're dumb. This logic says this. If you say, I'm, you fill in the blank. You say, no, I am. I've been pronounced righteous in Christ. I'm a child of the king. I'm seated in the heavenlies. I'm forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future. And so... As such, we learn to preach to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. Number nine, spend time with God-saturated people who help you, to, help you to see God and who help you to fight the fight. Number ten, be patient in the night of God's seeming absence. Some of you can relate to that, where you feel like God is far away. And Piper's urging us to be patient in the night of his seeming absence. Number 11, get some rest, get some exercise and a proper diet. 
And I think this is a really important one. It's not one we normally address from the pulpit, but one of the things I do in biblical counseling is I ask, have you seen a doctor? Are you getting the necessary rest that your body needs? Are you exercising? Are you eating right? When the person says, I haven't seen a doctor in five years, I get three hours of sleep a night, I have chronic insomnia, I haven't exercised in five years, and I eat Doritos for dinner. Well, some changes need to take place. And so we we get that rest, we get that exercise to the glory of God. Number 12, read great books about God and biographies of the great saints. And most of you know that I have a a passion for reading. I love, these are two of my most favorite things, to read books about God and books about great saints. And so I had to discipline myself to only pick four. And so two great books about God, The Knowledge of the Holy, written many, many years ago by A.W. Tozer. If you've never read The Knowledge of the Holy, it is an absolutely phenomenal book. And then a book written by A.W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God, which is on my top ten list. Is it on your top ten list, Jason, would you say? I mean, this, this, this is a massive, massive book that will encourage you in the Christian life. But then also to read good biographies. And Tom, I want to thank you because Tom Junkmas and I were talking before the service today. And I pulled out two books and they were probably both in the neighborhood of five or six hundred pages. They're my favorites. And Tom happened to mention this series edited by Dr. Stephen Lawson. I said, oh, get rid of the big ones. Most people don't want to rig those, right? Here's some little ones. These are about 120 pages apiece. Uh, here's one on Jonathan Edwards, another one on George Whitfield. Stephen Lawson has written, I've lost track, eight or nine or ten books in a series called The Long Line of Godly Men. These are powerful, powerful little books that I would commend to you. When I read these great biographies of the Christian faith, it makes me remember that men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and John Bunyan, they had struggles just like me. They had doubts just like me. They had problems just like me. And God used them in a mighty way. And so I commend these to you. Number 13. Do the hard work of loving things for the sake of others. That is, be sacrificial. Number 14, and finally, get a global vision for the cause of Christ and pour yourself out for the unreached. You know, the Camp Gilead team, some of the team members are here today, are are back, and Lord willing, we'll have a chance to debrief with them uh, next Sunday during the morning service. But this is an idea of what the Camp Gilead team did, is they were sacrificial. They gave up several days, uh, really not several days, the whole week, for the glory of God and for the good of children who needed to hear about Jesus. Let me close by saying this, that if you find yourself in a hopeless position. My encouragement to you is that you would turn your attention to the promises of the gospel. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage the whole church family to fight for joy. It is a difficult fight. It is a worthy fight. It is a fight that the Lord Jesus Christ goes in advance and fights for us. Paul the Apostle was one who fought for joy with reckless abandon. Here's what he says in this cross-centered moment in Galatians chapter 6. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Then he made this statement in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. He said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My plea with you today is that on the path that we are on to the celestial city, that we would live lives of joy. That we would live lives of hope all because of the gospel. That we are able to look in the rearview mirror now and see the, the beauty and the wonders of the cross. You remember the question my grandfather used to ask me before he went to be with the Lord. I think he asked me every time I got together with him. David, are you telling him about the cross? I want to tell you about the cross today. If you're not a believer that Jesus Christ came as the God man to die on that cross for sinners so that they would be reconciled to a holy God, so that they would be forgiven of all their sins, past, present and future, so that they would have the ability and the inclination now to live a a joy filled life. Let us live lives of hope. Let us live lives of joy all because of the cross, all because of the gospel, then and only then will our our mourning be turned into dancing. And if you're like me and have grown up in the Baptist church and say, Pastor, I can't believe you call it mourning to dancing. Good Baptists don't. Call it mourning to joy. Let's move from mourning to joy. All for the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the great love that you have for your people. Thank you for the plan of salvation, that we have the amazing ability to look in the past and see it unfold. Even though we have not sat directly at the feet of Jesus, we have now more insight and knowledge into his plans and purposes than even the disciples had. What an amazing thought that is. Father, I pray that you would fill your people with joy. I pray that you would fill your people with hope. I know that many here are battling uh, some really significant battles. I pray that this study and that this passage would be of encouragement to them, that it would serve them well, that they would see the The fight that is before them, and indeed the fight for joy, sometimes is vicious. God, sometimes it's difficult, but we know it's worth the battle. And so I pray that this week that we would be able to put some of these principles into place. For God, you have unlocked the door so that we have the ability and the inclination to live lives of unhindered joy. We thank you for the the beauty and the power of the gospel today. We thank you for the the great uh, gift of salvation and pray that we would learn as your people to appropriate these things on a daily basis. We pray these things in the son's worthy name. Amen. If you are visiting with us today, we would like to invite you to share the Lord's supper with us. The only biblical requirement is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. As we sit,